ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon read shop in Minnesota run by Ariel Detweiler, producing over 1,200 reads per year. Selling beginner and advanced level bassoon reads, ACDC Reads are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. Every read is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing Bassoon Pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with readmaking. ACDC Reads is proud to sponsor Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Read Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the read do the work. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Happy 2024. Oh my goodness. I I don't know what happened to 2023. You know what I mean? Yes, but also in some situations, things that were not that long ago feel like forever ago. Like New Zealand was like six months ago and it does not not feel like I went this year. No. (laughs) The other day, Chris was like, oh, it's six months with Orby. And I was like, what? What? You haven't had or- Orby for like three years now? Honestly. <laughs> wow. So it's day one of 2024. And over here at Double Read Dish, we like to turn a new page in our in our personal books here. We like to turn over a new leaf for the new year. That's right. And we've been doing some reflecting, you and I, in our mm-hmm. personal correspondence. Which is purely in voice memo, by the way. Constantly, nonstop, all day long. We're just constantly communicating like all day, every single day. Some of the voice memos are honestly like nine, 10 minutes long. (laughs) You don't usually go into the double digits, but if you look at the daily totals, it's definitely like hours that we spend. (laughs) It's like its own podcast. Absolutely. But one of the things that we have been talking about 
is not really like resolutions, like so formally as that, Mm -hmm. but just kind of like changes that we both are hoping to see going forward. And we thought like, Mm -hmm. wouldn't that be cool to have some kind of like accountability within our friendship for Mm -hmm. making these kind of changes that we're hoping to see? Yeah. So we, we talked about like, I don't know, we're, we're kind of both at the points in our career where you have a certain number of years behind you and habit forming and you start to look at that and you're like, is this working? Is it healthy? Is it healthy? Is it working? Is this sustainable? And it's a different mindset than the sprint. Yes. I was talking about this actually with my friends, Chris and Matthew And Chris put it beautifully in, there is a part, especially when you're first emerging into your career, where the answer is always yes. Mm -hmm. And you'll figure out logistically, financially, whatever it is, you will figure out a way to make it work. But you are in the period of your life where the answer just has to be yes. Mm -hmm. And that we as humans are not necessarily so good about noticing that that period is over and we can transition into a little bit more balance. And that's not to say that like everyone doesn't deserve balance, but there are definitely times in my career that I have um, where I, I felt like I was establishing establishing myself and everything had so much potential and was like such a great opportunity that I definitely benefited from saying yes as much as I did. But yeah, now coming up on 40, we can be a little bit more discerning because some of the things that we have said yes to have brought about responsibilities that are just so much bigger, so much more time consuming, and it can actually be irresponsible, you know, Mm -hmm. to just like keep saying yes at the same rate. Like there is something to be said for acknowledging how much you already have on your plate and can do well and passing on opportunities to people who could really benefit from them, you know, but there is a personal aspect as well. And that's kind of what we've been talking about more. So. Yeah. And it's not to say that, Oh my God, we are so accomplished now and we can actually blah, blah, blah. No, it's more about looking at what our lives look like and Mm -hmm. saying, is this going to work? the way that I'm doing it going forward. And for me, the answer has been no, it's not going to work the way I'm doing it going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things that I have noticed in the past year or two is that my self-talk, the way I see myself has become progressively more negative, damaging, black and white thinking. And so one of the things that I'm genuinely wanting to work on is incorporating more like self-compassion and self-love into actions in my day-to-day. So how this is going to manifest for me in 2024 is I'm going to start lifting at the gym. And how do you think those two things are going to connect and reinforce each other? Yeah. Okay. So this is a little bit vulnerable, but one of the ways that I see myself is in my professional interactions, I don't have leverage. I don't have power. I am a leaf in the wind, you know, and I think that by physically grounding 
in my body and making my body strong, Mm -hmm. I can get in a better habit of saying, I have personal power in my interactions with others and in my way of interacting with my profession, with my colleagues, with my opportunities. I think just having the outlet of physical strength building, physical activity is going to be helpful for how I see myself and be able to look at myself with a lot more, hopefully, compassion and pride and self-love. So that's how, that's kind of how I'm looking at it is if I can make my body strong, I can make my mind strong. So it's kind of like this self-talk, which is, is, seems very like career oriented. Like the Mm -hmm. way you talk about yourself is very associated with kind of how you feel professionally for sure. And then trying to combat that with a confidence building that is more comprehensive for sure who you are as a human. Yeah. Absolutely. And having like a a physical outlet outside of music where I can have something that is that I can really focus my full mind and body on that's not centered on what I do all day, every day. Yeah, I think for me, it's definitely it's not the same thing, but it's so interrelated, as we've discussed, like I have definitely been acknowledging that I need to strive for and create more balance in my life. And so kind of how I'm going forward in 2024 is more creating opportunities for rest and breaks that aren't earned. I feel like in my adult life up to this point, say I have a weekend and I have a to-do list, I would approach that space of time as you have a responsibility to get everything off of your to-do list. And if you can do it in a manner that is quick and efficient enough, then that remaining time is your rest and your break. And that's kind of what I'm realizing is no longer sustainable. I, to be perfectly honest, I have never met another human being with the capacity for productivity as you have. Well, and I'll be honest, I like it. Like I love having projects and I love having like things to devote my attention to. It's not torture, but it's just out of balance, you know? Mm -hmm. And so lately I've been trying to be like, well, yes, on Saturday I'm going to work, but on Sunday I'm going to take the day off. Or yes, I have these responsibilities that have to get done. And so um, before lunch is going to be my time that I give my attention to them. And then after lunch, that time is done and I'm spending time with people that I love or reading Mm -hmm. a book or that type of thing. And just basically like reminding myself that time doing something other than the bassoon or work does not have to be earned. Talk about vulnerable. I have not read a book in about a year and a half. Oh man. And actually a couple months ago, we had a dish about books and I talked about books that I had either started and abandoned or was wanting to read. And I felt like Mm. a big fraud because I was embarrassed to say to a classical Mm. music audience that I know is highly intellectual that I have just not read in a year and a half, even though it's something I love doing. Like if someone doesn't like doing it, that's fine. But I genuinely like doing it. Yeah. And part of this epiphany came, you were kind of thinking and reflecting in this manner. And then I was hanging out with a couple of girlfriends in Pullman and they were talking about like their favorite books they'd read this year. And again, I just felt so embarrassed. And I was like, Mm. I'm going to make a change. Like 
There's no reason that I can't read a book for 20 minutes a day. What am I doing to myself? But mm -hmm. good thing I got those emails sent off, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I have a lot of responsibilities, especially now through IDRS. And like, for example, I just got a WhatsApp from Sarah saying something about the website that needed to be updated. And I responded, great, I'll get that updated um, within the next couple of days. And usually my response was, I'll get that updated right now. And I would do it right then. And you know what? People are okay when you say, I will prioritize that in the next couple of days. It mm -hmm. People will actually give you the space to be a human being. Yeah. I just wasn't letting myself take it. But we have talked about in our friendship, just like, okay, throughout 2024, just making it a point to be like, you know, me asking you, how's lifting? And you making yeah. it a point to go, what are you reading? Yeah, I, I love that for us. And, you know, I, I just want, I just wanted a change in the way that I perceive myself and the way that I talk to myself. And, you know, I, I would love for you to not feel guilty about taking the time to read a book. Yeah. I'm just realizing this is a very vulnerable dish on the David McGill episode that's probably oh listened to by so many people. Oh, no. Okay. Well, whatever. Here's our... <laughs> vulnerable underbelly <laughs> oh no <laughs> Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians from around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of experience among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. We are so very excited to welcome to Double Read Dish, David McGill, who truly needs no introduction, but he is the professor of bassoon at the Bienen School of Music at Northwestern University. Welcome, Mr. McGill. Very nice to be here. We love to start by asking our guest how they started playing their instrument. So would you tell us how you began playing the bassoon? Okay. Well, just to give a little background, my mother was a piano teacher and also a church organist. So there was a lot of music in the home and she had a record collection. So a good friend of mine at that time in sixth grade started to play the saxophone. And I didn't know anything about musical instruments except for maybe the piano and the organ, which were in the house. So I told my mother, I came home and I said, I want to play the saxophone. And she said, no, no, no. If you're going to play an instrument, it's going to be an orchestra instrument. She was thinking of a saxophone just as jazz. So uh, she actually had a record of the young person's guide to the orchestra with the New York Philharmonic conducted by Leonard Bernstein. So um, she just handed that over to me. It had been in the house. And uh, so I listened to it over and over and over. And of course, what did I pick? The clarinet. 
it had this flashy, you know, up and down cascading variation. And I wanted to do that. So I started playing on the clarinet. They got a plastic clarinet for me in sixth grade. It was $180. And about four or five months later, I kept listening to this recording because I'm rather obsessive this way, even then. And um, I said to my mother, I think I really want to play the bassoon because it had two personalities in that Britain, you know, the bouncy sort of serious and then the uh, the yearning type uh, counter melody or whatever goes with the, the bouncing stuff. And um, so she said, what? After we bought you that $180 clarinet? So that was how it started anyway. But they acquiesced and I went to the junior high school, which was called then, and, and uh, checked out a bassoon. And, um, you know, I, I only played the clarinet for a few more months. And I only picked up the clarinet one more time in 10th grade. So about four years later, three, four years later. And that was just to get out of physical education. Because if you played in the marching band, you didn't have to take gym class. <laughs> that is the only reason to play the clarinet. Yeah. <laughs> well, it got me out of gym class. And I was never much of a sports fanatic. <laughs> Can we hear about um, you deciding that you wanted to pursue the bassoon professionally and embarking on your training and educational journey? Well, I'm a big believer that um, classical music, if you're going to be a performer, first of all, you have to get interested in, in it, I think, very early. And I was fortunate that my mother was a pianist and an organist and that she had this classical record collection. Every so often when my father was in a mood, he'd get out the opera records. He liked opera. But we didn't hear that very much, except when we knew we weren't supposed to go into the room and let him lay there in the dark and listen to his opera. Um so I, I was fortunate that it was in the house. It was right at my fingertips. Whenever I wanted to go listen to a record, I could just pull it out. And fortunately, the funny thing was she had a lot of uh, Philadelphia orchestra recordings were the main ones. Of course, that was the orchestra that recorded the most at that time. And these were all LPs. And the um, Chicago Symphony was well represented. And so was the Cleveland Orchestra with George Sell. So these three orchestras sort of permeated my my ear from a very early age. And I think this was what um, uh, made me think that maybe this is what I could do in life. Now, everyone thought I was going to be a, an artist because I was always drawing since, you know, I could pick up a pencil two years old or something. And um, I was, you know, getting into realistic sort of portraits of human beings, which is uh, to a certain extent more difficult to, to portray an individual than it is to draw a house, let's say. And so I, you know, everyone thought I was going to be a, an artist that way. Um, but I turned out to be an artist in the musical way. And uh, I thought it was a very natural progression. There was no great uh, worry about it. And I was not pushed in any way. The, the, my parents were just happy that I was following a musical path and that whatever I did, I tried to do to my utmost and can we talk about deciding where you wanted to go to college or what teachers you wanted to audition for, that type of thing? My hero in these early days uh, from seventh grade on, because of my mother's record collection, uh, was really uh, Bernard Garfield, who is still alive. You know, he's going to be 100 years old next May. That I, I find uh, very heartening because he's a He's such a legend of the bassoon. I'm glad he's still with us. Well, he was my hero. And also Leonard Sharrow, who had played principal bassoon in the Chicago Symphony. So these two 
people, when I listen to them over and over again, and I remember specifically the Mozart Bassoon Concerto with Garfield and Scheherazade with Shero and the Chicago Symphony. And um, um, I thought, well, I want to study with one of these guys. So I applied to uh, Carnegie Mellon outside of Pittsburgh, I think. And that's where Leonard Shero was teaching. He was in retired from, well, he was still playing, I guess, in the Pittsburgh Symphony at that time. And because um, he had gone from Chicago to Indiana University and then Pittsburgh, he had a very uh, interesting and varied career. Uh, Mr. Garfield was still teaching in Philadelphia. And so I thought, well, Curtis is certainly an option. That wouldn't that be great? And so um, I wanted to go there, but then Garfield quit. Garfield quit Curtis just before, like a year before I was going to get there because there was some kind of a dispute about how much he and the other woodwind teachers were going to get paid per hour. That's what I understand. And uh, so three or four of them en masse quit at Curtis. And then uh, a bassoon player who I was studying with during my senior year of high school, because I my teacher had left town. It's a complicated story. <laughs> my teacher had left town. She was principal, very young woman who was principal of the Tulsa Philharmonic. I loved her dearly, Jane Orzel. She uh, left, and I happened to have won the position of principal bassoon at the Tulsa Philharmonic when I was 17. So I played a whole professional season before I ever went to Curtis. At any rate, um, during that season, when I didn't have a teacher, that was the year, of course, you have to audition for schools. And so I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. So I took some lessons with a young man that I found out who had recently graduated from Curtis, Danny Phipps. And uh, two or three times I went down there during the year, had some lessons with him. And he said, don't worry, Schoenbach, Dr. Saul Schoenbach has come back to teach at Curtis. He left in 76 or something like that. And he came back in 80 when I was in the Tulsa Philharmonic. And so I went there in 81. I happened to have been accepted to um, Curtis in the fall of 80 or the spring of 81. And I went there in the fall. So it was a little bit uh, worrisome because I had wanted to study so much with Garfield. And the only place I could have gone uh, to study with him was Temple University, also in Philadelphia. So I believe, if I remember correctly, I did I did send an application to Temple and to Carnegie Mellon. And I might have sent one to Indiana University because if I hadn't got into Curtis, uh, I think Mr. Phipps was telling me that uh, Sidney Rosenberg would be a good person to study with. And he had actually been a Saul Schoenbach student way, way back. So it would have been of the same lineage, but uh, not with the big man himself. So I was very happy to go to Philadelphia and study with Saul Schoenbach. Would you tell us about your experiences at Curtis and then walk us through your professional journey? Well, that'll take more than an hour. That, yeah, that'll take a while. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, Curtis was transformative for me. Um, of course, I was very interested in being as expressive musically as I could be within my, how shall I say it, my intellectual limits, you know, of that that time, being 17 or 18 years old. And I did a good job. I, I played well and I played instinctually and I had a good technical foundation from my first teacher. And she was very practical about things. And I always thank myself for having studied with her. I have to thank her for studying with her. She accepted me when I was 12, and she said she never took students that young, but she did take me anyway, thank goodness. And she started me making reads that same year when I was 12. So uh, at any rate, um, when I went to Curtis, I was suddenly exposed to 
other young musicians who lived and breathed music all day long. And they were just so many of them were absolutely spectacular. I remember one of the first rehearsals at Curtis um, with the Curtis Orchestra. Um, we were just doing a reading rehearsal, I think, on a Saturday morning. And it had the William Tell Overture. And it has huge English horn solo. And when that English horn began to play, I thought to myself, I've never heard anything so beautiful in my life. And it was Kathy Greenbank who mm. became the oboist of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra for 40 years, I think. And then she went to the, the Minnesota Orchestra as assistant or associate or whatever it's called uh, for a few years. And I think she's retired now. But Her she, sound just kills me. It's so unbelievable. And to hear it live in the room, you just feel like you're, you're witnessing a miracle. Mm-hmm. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I was struck, stricken. I don't know what the right word is with this sound and this control. And like it, it, she was right just a few feet away from me because I was sitting at the end of the bassoon section. I wasn't playing principal in my first year. She was, she was there, you know, in front of me on the English horn. And it just sounded like it was coming from nowhere and everywhere at the same time. The attacks were just so perfect and beautiful. And so I made up my mind, I want to sound like that. That was my goal anyway. So she played a, a rather formative role in my very first days at Curtis. And I asked her right then that day, I said, may, uh, may I look at your reads? And would you tell me about how you do this and that? And I was already making kind of crazy reads uh, from Danny Phipps, who had sort of steered me down an oboistic style of making reads with a tip and a heart and windows and a back. Mm. And many bassoon players play with a more, I don't know what to call it, a straight scrape of the lay of the reed from the back to the front with a little crescent uh, at the tip where, where you see it's mm-hmm. shaped like that. And um, I had started out making reeds like that, but um, he started me thinking about making the windows and all that business. And then I thought, well, if that's what the oboe players do and that's the results they get, that's what I'm going to get. So I went down that road and I never turned back. I was just very, very happy about that. Now, of course, the other experiences at Curtis, it was not just the great students I was around, but it was the fact that we got to work with some very um, famous and legendary conductors. Uh, that first year I was there, it was the centennial of Bartok. So it was 1982, 81, 82, I was there. And who did they have in to conduct the Curtis Orchestra for a television show? which I don't know if it was ever finally released because there was an incident, um, was Eugene Ormandy, who had conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra for 44 years. So he came in and he, we were taping this thing and he had some kind of a heart uh, incident before we could finish the, the, I don't know, two taping sessions or something like this with retakes and so forth. So the assistant conductor of the, or the resident conductor of the Curtis Institute had to finish the broadcast, but they made sure not to show the conductor, you know, with the cameras that were there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how it was ever pieced together. And of course I didn't have a television for the next three years anyway, because uh, when I was at Curtis, I had no media. Um, so it was just music, music, music. You know. And then um, we had Raphael Frubeck de Burgos. I remember Zubin Mehta came and conducted the Curtis orchestra. We had, um, most famously of all, Leonard Bernstein came to conduct. And of course, it's a very, he's such a big name. And I'm glad this movie that has just come out is bringing his name to all sorts of young people who may have heard the name, but they don't know anything about him. And I was very happy to have worked with him for the, the Curtis 60th anniversary uh, concerts in 1984. 
Now, the biggest one of all was Sergiu Celibidache. And Celibidache was a Romanian conductor who was known only to aficionados and cognoscenti in America, those who really knew about the European conductors and these uh, sort of wizards of, of thinking. And he came only to the Curtis Institute only because John Delancey, the director of the school, guaranteed him 17 rehearsals with the with the Curtis Orchestra. That's the reason that at age 71, Chalabadaki had never conducted in America. He always demanded an inordinate number of rehearsals. And uh, finances being what they are, you know, no orchestra can do a month of rehearsals, basically, for, for one set of concerts. So he was promised that by Delancey, and he came there. And it was the February of 84, the whole month of February. And we did our 17 rehearsals. We had sectionals. We had uh, lectures by him. And he was everywhere around the school for the whole month. And it was a, it was also, like I said about Curtis in general, it was a transformative experience because uh, even though I was certainly unprepared, as I said before, intellectually, uh, I was getting slightly more prepared. I didn't understand half of what he was talking about because he gave these lectures about phenomenology and uh, esoteric uh, aspects of that and how it affects uh, music. And I, although I gleaned little bits of it, for instance, um, he said a repeat in music is not just a repeat of the same thing. He says, it's, isn't it different? He says, when you, when you meet a stranger on the street and then later you meet them, they're a friend. It's the same person. That's beautiful. Your attitude is different when you meet them the second time. And that's what a repeat in music is. Mm -hmm. So I found that to be beautiful, like you said. And there were many other things like that. But um, Chalabadaki was a big, big, big influence. And we went to... Uh, Carnegie Hall and the reviewers there, and you can look it up. The reviewers there said it was the finest concert they'd heard in 25 years of reviewing and better than all the major orchestras. And the Philadelphia Orchestra had just been there. And uh, the reviewers were saying how the Curtis Orchestra put the Philadelphia Orchestra to shame and all this stuff. Now, the, Mr. Delancey wasn't too happy about that because it wasn't his, <laughs> his intention to, you know, shed uh, shade on... Philadelphia Orchestra and Ricardo Muti was very young and conducting there at that time. So um, it, it got to, how can I say it, mixed reviews from the people who were um, dealing with Mr. Delancey. They said, how could you bring Chalabadaki? You knew what a big mouth he had because he also said some things in interviews that were very disparaging about everyone else. Chalabadaki was not a, a demure self-effacing kind of a guy he was very sure of himself and he would he would insult people oh, but uh, musically it was thrilling <laughs> what can i say about that may i ask what was on that concert yes it was the overture to la gazza ladra mm -hmm. by rossini we had the i remember we finished with the scythian suite we had the tristan prelude and his prelude in love death from tristan and isolde and we did the WC Iberia. Oh, it's a good concert. So we did, we did, um, it's probably one of the only concerts I can remember, all four pieces on the concert. If you ask me about any other concert, I might remember <laughs> one thing we did. But this was just, uh, like I said, it was trans transformative for me. And uh, uh, there is a recording of it. Of course, recordings are not actual representations of the the live sound. This is what uh, Chalabadaki 
hated. He hated recordings. You know, it doesn't give the full blended sound of the orchestra. So you can glean something from that if you hear the Curtis Orchestra 1984 with Chalabadaki. It's pretty special. What I remember was that the we got a standing ovation after the overture. Oh, yeah. It landed. It lasted almost as long as the overture itself. Wow. I bet that felt really good as a student. Well, it felt good because we certainly had worked hard to to please Chalabadaki. I remember Mr. Delancey in the woodwind class. He was saying, make the thinnest reed you can, play as softly as you can. He said, if you have to put socks in the bell, do it. We don't want him to leave us, you know, because he was always threatening. He said, oh, these students aren't ready for for the kind of things I'm trying to get them to do. And, and we did it. He was ultimately happy. But it was a high-pressure event, and it got me ready for the life to come. Uh, you asked about my whole career, but that gets me through Curtis anyway. I graduated in 85. Um, yeah, your, your career is so decorated that, yeah, it maybe is too much to go into everything. Um, but, you know, most notably you were principal bassoon of the Cleveland Orchestra and the Chicago Symphony. And, um, could we maybe hear, I don't know, a bit about preparing to audition for opportunities like those and uh, the approaches that you took? Well, as far as prep Preparation goes. Um, I'm a firm believer in having one mindset and one mindset only. I don't practice in one way, perform in another, get ready for an audition with these special techniques or that. What I was taught at Curtis anyway was that everything you do should be concert worthy from the first moment after you put the bassoon together in the morning. And you try to make that first attack as beautiful as you can. And from there, you you build. And so everything, it's like you have a respect for the instrument and for music itself. You're not thinking about the process and so forth. And I, I never went into an audition thinking, oh, this is an audition. This is different from playing a concert. And so I always had the mentality that when I played an audition list, it was just a little sweet for unaccompanied bassoon with a lot of short movements. Anyway, that's the preparation. And uh, what about assuming these roles and then the things you learned from being in these positions? Well, just like when you're a little kid and you go from, uh, let's say, kindergarten to elementary school or elementary school to middle school. Um, in kindergarten, they have their own little jokes and fun things that are posted up on the wall and certain nap time and things you do. It's a kind of a culture, right? And then you move into elementary school and they have their own jokes, it's a, what I like to call a culture cloud. You pass through this culture cloud of a, of, of a kindergarten and a culture cloud of, of elementary. You get into junior high or a high uh, middle school, and it's it's a t totally different uh, culture. And these jokes and the the things that that those kids do and their rituals around their sports teams and everything else those those stay in the school, and you just pass through it. <laughs> and then you pass through your high school, and then you pass to your your university level education. And then you, if you're lucky enough to get a job, you pass into a culture with some of these great orchestras. And when I went to the Toronto Symphony as principal bassoon, it has its own culture and its own history. So I tried to glean as much as I could by always listening to the older players. Uh, the younger players were always very exciting, you know, because they're fresh and new and young. They, they were green as I was. And, but um, for some reason, I guess I've always gravitated towards learning from older, more experienced people. And I think it has benefited me. So I always made it my uh, uh, priority to sit next to, on every bus, on every tour, a different 
violinist or cellist or trombone player or whoever was could tell me stories about the orchestra and about what this conductor was like and what this what the sound was under so and so and I learned a great deal uh, from how to how to become assimilated into a culture. Also, I was living in Canada, you see, so that was a new culture for me as well. Mm-hmm. And um, with Andrew Davis as the conductor, Sir Andrew mm-hmm. Davis, who then later, later, many years later, came here to Chicago to conduct the uh, Lyric Opera of Chicago. He just retired. Mm-hmm. So he was a young man when he hired me. I've always been grateful for him hiring me in Toronto. But then I went to Cleveland and talked about having a culture and a history, you know, with George Sell and the accuracy and the the intonation and the way we tune and all that stuff. Uh, and of course, John Mack was the leading figure in that orchestra. And he was a, a big influence on me in terms of professionalism. I would put that first and dedication to his teaching. I, I don't think you could find a more dedicated teacher than John Mack. And, um, but there was a, there's a whole culture about the Cleveland orchestra and about playing on the beat and not being late and, you, you absorb these things if you're open to it. You, you can't go in playing the way you play and think everyone's going to adjust to you. You go in with an open ear, so to speak, and uh, you learn from what they can offer you, and it makes you better and more flexible. And then when I went to Chicago, of course, the Chicago Symphony has their own culture going back through George Schulte. We, I was hired by Barenboim, but this went back through all the years of George, Sir George Schulte and back to uh, Fritz Reiner, you know, going back to the early 1950s. So, and, you know, the big Chicago sound and all that. So uh, each one of these organizations had a distinct, unique culture that I was very open to learning from. And I must tell you, it was it was so enriching. And I can just tell you parenthetically that I was very happy, you know, when it goes back to my mother's record collection. She had so many Philadelphia recordings. I went to school in Philadelphia. She had a lot of Cleveland orchestra recordings. I became principal of Cleveland and she had Chicago symphony recordings and I became principal of Chicago. So it's, it was like I was fulfilling even my own personal dreams. And I'll tell you from a, a young age, I always wanted to be principal of the Philadelphia orchestra. But when the time came and that job opened, I was so happy in Chicago that I didn't even give it a second thought. I told him, no, I, I'm not interested. You said, I made my mother proud enough. Thank you so much. <laughs> enough jewels in my crown (laughs) well and I also you know I came to realize later that what I was in love with was the old Philadelphia Orchestra the old recordings the old my old teachers and all that and that was rapidly changing every orchestra evolved and so the kind of love that I had for the Philadelphia Orchestra was a retroactive love you know it was going back to the recordings from the 60s and 50s and 40s going back to Stokowski and Fantasia you know but um Anyway, I was very happy that I wound up in Chicago and it was so exciting because the parade of guest artists that came through there was just a who's who of music. You never knew who you were going to run into in the, on your way up to the stage because there were always uh, prima donnas and uh, piano soloists who weren't even playing with the orchestra that week. They would just come into town to say hi to Danny Barenboim, you know, because he was so connected with everybody. Mm-hmm. You could just, you know, it's a who's who and it just was uh, endless. You know, Kramer comes walking down the hall and he's not even the soloist. And there here comes Isaac Perlman and Mika Zuckerman just in town to say hi to Danny. <laughs> no big deal. No big deal. So it was uh, it was so exciting because I grew up with all these people, you know, on television in the 1970s when they were young. Yeah. Because back then, of course, you only had the three major networks and PBS. And on PBS, you'd have 
quite a lot of arts programming. So if you didn't want to see a crime drama or some silly comedy, you'd switch over to PBS. And I think it was a great, uh, how can I say it? It was a great influence on, on the culture in the United States and wor- worldwide. And we've kind of lost that because media is so splintered mm-hmm. now that uh, you can find anything you want to the, to the smallest niche. You know, you can have uh, fly fishing for beginners or something like that. You know, it could be whatever it's pinpoint. And back then it was, you know, you watch these or you watch that and you don't have much choice or you go outside and ride your bike. <laughs> it's a uh, related, but bit of an esoteric question. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what makes a great principal bassoonist. Hmm. Well, um, I, I never tried to play as a principal bassoonist, if you know what I mean. I didn't, um, you know, there's a very famous movie from the 1960s about race relations called, uh, uh, guess who's coming to dinner? It starts Sidney Poitier. Mm-hmm. And he's a young man who happens to be African-American. And the woman he falls in love with, the young girl of the family, is a white girl. And so the whole thing is he's coming over to dinner to this white family to have dinner in the middle 1960s. And you know what was happening in the 60s with uh, Great Society and Lyndon Johnson and racial strife and all this business. Mm-hmm. And at one point he, he says, you know, to his father who comes over, his, his parents come over, his African American parents come over also to have dinner. And he looks at his, his father and he says, you know, dad, this situation between me and this young girl, uh, it's just, just normal. It's love. He, she's, he says, the difference between you and me is that you thought of yourself as a black man. I just think of myself as a man. Mm-hmm. And this is what I thought about myself as a, musician i didn't really like to think of myself as a bassoonist i thought of myself as a musician who just happens to uh, paint with that brush Mm -hmm. so i don't don't think it's a you know a question of what makes a great principal bassoon player at least in my mind Mm -hmm. what makes a great musician that's a different question now of course you have to lead a section you have to be strong in your beliefs and you have to know what you're doing but that that's all part of being a musician knowing I don't know where the appoggiaturas are and the resolutions and knowing how to make your note groupings and where you're going with the phrase and where the harmony changes. And do you have a chromatic passing tone that's leading you to a new harmony? And so if you approach it musically, then bassoon becomes less and less important. I think it's just the color. It's the, it's the vehicle you drive. It's not you. It's not where you're going. Mm -hmm. It's not the destination. Thank you. You have of course been on, many audition panels behind the screen and we would love to know uh what you've learned from those experiences and what you want to hear from candidates who are auditioning for orchestral positions well i'll start with what i consider to be a very funny story but touching as well Uh, you know uh, the chicago symphony had or still has i guess one of the only open audition policies out there in other words anyone who applies can come and audition. Therefore, we sometimes have 150 or more applicants. And it's, you know, if you have a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday concerts, well, guess what? All day Friday, you're having auditions from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Then you play the 8 p.m. concert. And then you Saturday, you're doing the same thing and you play that concert. So and then the next Saturday, you have all auditions again and it goes on for a few weeks. So it's, it gets a little tiresome so um uh burl lane who was the contrabassoon player of the chicago symphony for decades was a good friend of mine and he he was very serious after this one incident we had a someone come in and it was always behind a screen 
And this person, you know, played a couple of notes and we kind of looked at each other like, what's going on here? That doesn't sound too good. And he, this person proceeded to play the Mozart bassoon concerto with mistake after mistake. I mean, it was wrong notes and added notes and extra 16ths. And it was, it was quite, how can I say it? It was different. <laughs> and it was very hard after, you know, he was candidate, I don't know, 86 or 99 or 112. And we were all kind of breaking up behind the scenes there. Now, we later learned that he was an honorable person who was a firefighter who had actually come from the West Coast just after fighting a fire. Now, that doesn't mean that that, that makes his bassoon playing any better, but we all understood that each person that comes is sacrificing of themselves to try for something that they want. And But Ben Burl put the punchline all this on all this. After he was gone and we heard this story, he said, you know, David, these auditions go on and on and on. And it's so difficult to sit day after day after day and listen to these people. He says, but every so often, someone comes in and plays so badly that it makes it all worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'll never forget that audition. Burl hit the nail on the head. <laughs> you can hear a lot of mediocre players and they, they're very indistinguishable one from the other. Mm-hmm. But we'll remember him. <laughs> I don't know if I answered your question or where I was leading with that, but that's that's the funny side of the auditions. And uh, of course, you know, the other side was just having to sit there day after day after day. People, I'm sorry, auditionees often expect to be able to call you up afterwards and this is, hello, this is candidate number 56. Uh, do you have your comments? I'm sorry. <laughs> the only comment I might have is a no on a note card. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, because uh, when someone comes in and is doing well, you start to take notes and um, uh, you just can't uh, stay at the ready and make long uh, comments written down for everybody and then try try to remember, you know, what did I mean by saying this and this candidate? You it's just you can't you can't provide the so-called feedback that everybody wants Mm -hmm. Uh, for the candidates who made it to the finals. That's a little bit different because you do take detailed notes and um, you can give comments about why this or that uh, might have been better played or it might have been a general comment you can give but uh, it's difficult being on an audition committee it's very time consuming and uh, it takes a lot out of the committee because then we have to like I said turn around and play a concert Mm -hmm. and it's exhausting but it's a necessary (laughs) situation go ahead Mm-hmm. For those players who do advance or who end up in the finals for an orchestra like that, do you observe any trends among what makes you stand out in a group of 150? Well, I like to think that people who are who have reached the Chicago Symphony and have worked with great conductors and have gone to great music schools and had wonderful teachers know something about music. And I'm always going back to music, 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 and not just about bassoon, bassoon, Mm -hmm. but that those players who rise to the top are the ones who are not only technically proficient because, you know, there are quite a number of technically proficient players out there who do things musically one way or another. But if, if you're a technically proficient player who then plays music according to what I think the composer wrote or what all of us on the committee might think that the composer wrote. In other words, knowing these things about where the appoggiaturas are and the resolutions and you're leading to this because of the underlying harmony and so forth. We can all hear that. We can hear when a, when a musician comes into play for us who happens to be a bassoonist 
I mean, I sat on committees for all different instruments. Uh, thankfully, I never had to sit in on a percussion audition because I wouldn't <laughs> have qualified. But um, at any rate, um, you you really it comes down to who's being the most musical, and musical meaning that which comports to the composer's music, mm-hmm. uh, not just doing something. Anyone can just make make sounds that go up and down or louder and softer, but it has to go with what the music is saying because then your your music making becomes a kind of a three D quality because you and the composer are meshed together. It's not like the composer painted an apple tree and you're giving me an iguana and mm-hmm. it doesn't really <laughs> match, but you have to give me the apple tree from a slightly different uh, viewpoint. And then it becomes a 3d mm-hmm. apple tree. I don't know why I came up with those. But no, that is fantastic. I love that. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes a person stand out. It's the musicianship. It's not like you read on some of these maybe blogs from, I remember reading some things about 10, 15 years ago, people complaining about, Oh, I practiced my, my whole life for this, and then I was just dismissed without a word, and uh, the audition process is, is skewed, and it's wrong, and it's bad, and well, being on the other side of it, I can tell you, the people listening are very good people, and they're listening for musicianship. They're not just listening for someone who might have missed a note in, in a some fast excerpt. Uh, we all miss notes. People in the Chicago Symphony, I got news for you. We, we miss notes, too. What we try not to miss is the music. And that's right. where the the real education comes in, because studying music is a whole different thing, I suppose, than studying just the bassoon. Uh, it's a, just like studying reed making is different from studying the bassoon if you're talking about fingerings, all that business, how to breathe them. So uh, we we really have our work cut out for us where we're doing so many things. And then, of course, you get into the orchestra. If you get a job, you have to be able to follow the conductors and blend with the other players, tune with them. And that's why we have what's called the tenure process. And if you don't get tenure, guess what? You're out and you have to uh, re-audition or look for another job. You know, mm-hmm. So it's a difficult profession to get into. It's difficult to stay in it. And, you know, it's um, I have sympathy for everybody who chooses it as a career because it's so fulfilling internally. Mm-hmm. But it can be uh, also internally uh, angst producing. Right. You know, but there's a lot of worry about, you know your (laughs) self-worth when you're a musician. And so you have to really just say to yourself, I'm not going to keep looking inside myself for inspiration. I'm going to look inside the music. And then you have everything to draw from. You never get tired. If you're constantly trying to say, well, how can I be more expressive? What am I doing? Then it becomes so self-involved that you can't really see what Bach is giving you or Beethoven or Mozart. And that, I think, that's a great gift because we have these, I think of them as as geniuses who we're able to commune with mentally, and they teach us. Isn't that amazing that, you know, someone who's been dead for 250 years or whatever it is can can teach us so much if we just listen. I feel like this is the perfect time to talk about sound and motion. Um, (laughs) Those of us who know it well have already recognized some of the things you've been referencing from within its pages. Um, So I have a couple of questions, but um, maybe the best place to start is the inspiration and background uh, before we get into kind of the content and approach. So what inspired you to write Sound and Motion? How did this come about? Well, since you've looked at it, you probably are not surprised that I'll say that it was my teachers. My teachers inspired me. 
I was very fortunate at Curtis to have had uh, Saul Schoenbach as my bassoon teacher. And he was not just a bassoon teacher. He was a music teacher. And I had John Minsker, who was the retired English horn player of the Philadelphia Orchestra, who had been hired by Leopold Stokowski himself, as had Saul Schoenbach when they were very young and had both played on Fantasia, (laughs) the original Fantasia. And uh, he had a woodwind class, Mr. Minsker, mainly quintet, where you would either play or listen. You would audit, and then you'd change it halfway through the semester or something like that. Or maybe it was every other week. I can't remember. But we learned by listening as well as by playing with Mr. Minsker, who was the biggest devotee of Marcel Tabito you could ever have. And then we had something like six hours a week with Mr. Delancey because he had the orchestra rep class, which he conducted, and also uh, a woodwind quintet class of his own. So with these three teachers uh, guiding the thinking there at the school and in the woodwind department and in my own brain, I felt like I had such a a wonderful wealth of concepts that had helped me so much that why couldn't they help others? And I couldn't find any books that talked about all the stuff that they had talked about. Now, of course, when I was writing the book, of course, my own two cents went into it. You know, I added my own perspective about various subjects, but I tried to go even beyond my teachers, to go back to their main influence, which even Saul Schoenbach said was Marcel Tabuteau, the great oboist of the early part of the 20th century, who really formed what we now know as the American oboe sound and the Amer- almost the American woodwind school of playing is based on Tabuteau's teaching because of the refinement he de- demanded from everyone who had gone to that school. And of course, they all fanned out over the country and got jobs and their influence like branches of a tree, it just kept blossoming and blossoming into new areas, new cities. And so you can say that Marcel Tabuteau ultimately was the inspiration of it all. But uh, it was certainly my teachers and their interpretation of his system, uh, not just the number system, but all other manner of uh, musical concepts um, that influenced me. And that's what I tried to put on paper so that it would it would be there. You know, because Mr. Delancey didn't write a book, <laughs> Saul Schoenbach didn't write a book, and John Minsker didn't write a book. And yet what they gave me was so, I think, uh, important that it, it should be written down somewhere. So that was my, my attempt to keep their ideas alive. It came out in 2007 when I was in the middle of graduate study, actually with Matthew Ruggiero, who was a Tabito. That's right. As well. And a great bassoon player, by the way, a great musician of the bassoon. Yes. And I remember reading it and feeling um, it's a special book to so many of us, even those of us who are not bassoonists, but um, feeling so validated um, or perhaps encouraged because I did not grow up with all of the resources. I'm a, I grew up as a poor native kid. And so I had a bit of a later start than I think many who play the instrument. And uh, if our listeners will, and you will indulge me a little bit, I, I'd like to read um, something that I'd just love for you to maybe expand upon or for our younger listeners who maybe uh, need to be encouraged to dig in a little bit. So one passage among many that resonated with me was especially the beginning of the book where you have these question marks of, of what music. And, and you know what? I had to fight for that whole section from the publisher. I had to fight for those chapters. They wanted me to cut that whole opening section. I've gotten more comments about the, the so-called attitude sections at the beginning than any other part of the book. And I'm glad you, I'm glad you mm-hmm. found it. Valuable. I think they're so important. So you say the possibility of producing great art dies when one believes his or her talent alone will carry the day. 
quote, I just do what feels right at the moment. I feel the music. This way of blindly feeling one's way through a musical performance at the expense of studying the music's structure may indeed be expressive, but expressive of what? The unquestioning belief in one's spur-of-the-moment impulses can, by its very nature, nature, yield only a hit-and-miss result. On reflection, it seems the very height of egotism to trust one's gut reactions so implicitly." And I remember feeling the message, which is essentially no, and, and you say explicitly, actually, other parts of the book, it is not the hand of God that comes down and touches <laughs> the heads of some and not yours, Jackie. If you behave as a professional and if you study as a professional, this is a uh, viable career path. You can catch up if you are willing to do the work because it simply is a matter of doing the work and those who who choose to engage and understand what we do. So I, I wonder if you have any response to that or any other um, comments to make about the content of the book and, and your goals with that regard. Well, that's a core belief of mine that we are not just there to engage, and this is a quote from the book, I guess, in a sort of uh, uh, act of crude exhibitionism, say, I'm feeling this music and therefore you should feel it. Mm-hmm. What we're really doing is something bigger than that. We are trying to revivify the, these long dead composers and, and great, to, great, to a great measure, you know, we're playing people, people's music who have been dead for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And through their music, they achieve a certain immortality, but only through us. And isn't that an awesome power? that we have is to bring these people back to life. And so you can sit there and listen to a 30 minute Mozart symphony, let's say. And for 30 minutes, you can be brought through the same sequence of sounds, which leads you through a very similar sequence of emotions for that 30 minutes that they would have lived in 1786 or whatever. From the beginning of that piece to the end of that piece, you'd be living in a time warp. And I find that to be a great and awesome power that musicians have. It's the closest thing to time travel we can get you know, in, in life, in living. And uh, I think it's a, it's a great gift to be a part of that sort of situation where we're not just uh, bringing the music to life, but we're very fortunate in that in most cases or many cases, because so much of the music that has come down to us from geniuses, we're, we're dealing with human brains that were just above and beyond. I mean, uh, we've all met people who were just incredible they're 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 geniuses and we think to ourselves how can we possibly get get to their level but if you try you can't help but to get closer thank you that's so moving yeah (laughs) so i would love to uh maybe switch over to your pedagogy a little bit um like your teachers before you, you continue the oral tradition of teaching. Uh, and I guess in two parts, I would love to know, um, on the one hand, what do you look for in an applicant who is asking to study with you? What are some core characteristics that you find exciting in a potential student? And what are some things that you really hope that a student will get from your instruction? Well, in choosing students, I can tell you that I am looking for some expression. They don't have to know what they're trying to express, but that they're trying to express something, anything. I'm looking for some variety in the presentation. Of course, um, you know, when you're talking about undergraduates, you're looking for a certain amount of technical proficiency, but it doesn't have to be so great that 
you know, they're already a virtuoso, so to speak, but um, they have to have some sort of um, command over the instrument. And there should be an attempt at dynamics. (laughs) So these are some basic things. So you see, when you're looking for a student, it's not, you're not looking for uh, too many uh, specifics. You're looking for a general ability to give some idea that they know that it's a, it's an art of expression. It's not just an art of uh, show off F major scales or something like that. Like in the Weber concerto has a lot of, scales go up and down and up and down and that's important to be able to do that but what do you do with those scales so i'm always looking for some kind of grain of of expression i'm not always looking for total understanding of course because that's what they go to school for they to understand what the music is saying to get get more expression out of the music by having understood it so um that's what i look for in the beginning and then what i try to give them is understanding so that they can figure out what this composer is saying how the music is put together pardon me how the music is put music is put together Saul Schoenbach was so good about that because he would say okay here the composer is using this motif that goes up and comes down well what do you see here later in the work you see something that goes down and comes up it's just the inversion of this main idea and it's later and then he'll say okay here here you see these four sixteenth notes that do that now you see four whole notes that do the same thing way later in the piece, but that's the same motif. It's just been augmented. It's been stretched out. So what he tried to do was to teach some form and structure and trying to understand what the composer had done. And that can only make your musicianship richer. And um, so there's so much that goes into a musical education. Of course, he was also to get very specific about bassoon type things. He was a, what I call a walking dictionary of fingerings. He just was (laughs) always looking for fingering trills things like this. So you you had to learn how to be very uh, quick on the trigger. In other words, when he told you, put the middle finger down to the right hand and lift this and put this down and change your tongue position and you'll get it. And then you have to try to put all that together and do it. You know how how difficult it is for many students to incorporate even one new fingering right after you tell them what it is. Most of them don't know their left hand from their right hand. I have to keep saying, your other left hand, your other (laughs) left hand. Uh, you've had such rich experiences. And so we want to ask a, a couple of uh, questions that have you reflect on those. Um, you spoke a bit when you talked about Curtis, about your work with conductors, but you, as a professional, you know, you've worked with every great conductor of our time. And so we wondered if you could talk to us about those experiences, if there's any um, conductor that stands out as particularly influential or favorite stories or that type of thing. Well, I'll tell you, um, you know, many people are not uh, privileged to have worked in the kind of organizations that I've been able to work in. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity because they they often look for a special guest conductor who comes in and brings something really special and then they go away and then they're back with their regular conductor and their regular concerts and so forth. Well, we were lucky with the Chicago Symphony, for instance, that our regular conductor was Daniel Barenboim. Mm-hmm. So let's put it this way. For my, in my mind, our regular conductor was our special conductor, you know, the one. So I had that just week after week after week, year after year after year, and it was magnificent. And this is a man I can truthfully say is a genius. Uh, he's a world famous piano soloist. He's a 
consummate chamber musician, and he's a, a conductor. So he's got it all. He's just not a composer. I mean, Bernstein had the composing. Um, anyway, uh, what can I say about Daniel Barenboim? I mean, everything was so deeply musical. And he had a certain flexibility, so it wouldn't be by rote every night. It wouldn't be the same interpretation. It was more uh, flexible than even some people in the orchestra liked. I remember we had some cellists in the orchestra who did not like uh, that we would take a different tempo here or there, do a different rubato. But Berenboim was just so into the music that, and whatever he was doing always seemed to have a musical reason because if he did a rubato, he would be pointing to the basses that had a D flat, you know, at that moment. And it kind of justified, not kind of, it really did justify what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So um, he he was engaged in what could be called the search, you know, the, the constant search for greater musical expression. And, you know, even my book says, you know, it's sound in motion. Uh, performer's guide to greater musical expression. We're always looking for more, aren't we? And that's what I found with, with Berenborn, that he was always searching. And then when he left, of course, we were luckier than practically any orchestra because we had a dual sort of conductorship going on with Bernard Heitink, who was everybody's dream conductor as a gentleman and as a scholar. And then we had... Uh, the Holy Terror himself, Pierre Boulez, who could solfege a mile a minute and who did all the modern music. And uh, he had ideas that were so direct that you couldn't, he wouldn't diverge. He would almost be the same every night. But you see, you learn from these people who had different approaches. Mm-hmm. And then came the Muti years. So, I mean, you cannot get better than having Berenboim. I had Berenboim for nine years and then... Haitink and Boulez for four years, splitting that. And then I had Muti for four years in my time at the Chicago Symphony. And I would have missed out on all that had I gone to Philadelphia. And I'm not going to disparage any of the conductors who worked there, but I'm certainly glad that I worked with the, the ones I had in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's uh, I, I was lucky. We, we certainly looked forward to certain guest conductors, but I always felt that our, our regular diet was special. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the cats, you know, I had cats for a long time and they always look for that one day when you bring home some wet food because you feed them the dry, <laughs> crunchy stuff because it's good for their kidneys. And then, you know, they go wild over the wet food. That's like a guest conductor that comes in. <laughs> I, I I was on a diet of wet food all the time. With, with <laughs> Sorry. I, silly <laughs> I love that. Would you share with us a favorite memory from a past performance? Okay, one jumps right out, and it's not. It was, I wasn't even playing. I was on stage. We were doing a Mozart piano concerto, and it was Daniel Barenboim. And I wish I could remember. Maybe it was I don't know, twenty four, twenty one, or some one of these late piano concertos, which is each one of them is, is perfection itself. Whenever Barenboim was playing a Mozart piano concerto, conducting from the keyboard, and it was the small orchestra there, I I had this feeling that nothing, no matter how important that was happening on the face of the earth could have been more, more important than what was going on on that stage. That was the kind of, you were just taken to another world of pure beauty and you thought there's just nothing better. Was, how can anything be more important? Well, he got to the cadenza and this was, this was right at the time when I was given tenure. In fact, I think it was the day I had been handed a letter and I had to go out and play a, mat- a matinee concert with this Mozart concerto. And I had gotten my tenure in Chicago 
And there was never, he always told me, oh, there's no question, David, you've been in Cleveland for so long and all this stuff, but it's a formality we have to go through. And he gave me the tenure very early, but um, it also happened to have been my birthday. So he got to the cadenza of this Mozart piano concerto, and right in the middle of your and gets back into the cadenza. And he's staring at me with his round eyes. He played happy birthday for me in the middle of a cadenza in a live performance. Oh my That's God. So special. <laughs> so uh, that jumps out to me and it was not me. It wasn't a so-called musical moment. It was a personal moment. And I just thought that was, when do you have ha- happy birthday from Daniel Barron once on stage? And the whole audience people. just thought it was a fun little joke. <laughs> or even if they caught on on it, I wasn't even sure what he was doing when he was doing it. And then he, he came up to me afterwards. He says, you didn't catch, you didn't catch my thing, did you, that, that I did for you? I said, yes, I heard it. I heard it. I didn't know to write it off of the bat because I was listening to the cadenza. And you didn't know that Umbadim wasn't going to go to something else. But then, dum, bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. So is that a special enough memory? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We have a a last question we always love to end with. But before that, is there anything that we didn't ask you that we should have? Um, Well, I was very honored. Uh, I took part because you are both, uh, I believe both of you are deeply involved in the Double Reed Society. The the gilet competition, I was in the very first one in 1981. Mm-hmm. And that was when they had oboes and bassoons together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the very first one was both. And uh, a bassoon player got first prize and I got second prize. So it was two bassoon players and then a noble player got third prize. And I vowed then and there that I was going to come back and win the next one. Well, the uh-huh. next year it was just oboes. They decided to separate oboe and bassoon and do alternate years. So I came back in the in 83, which is the first all bassoon one. And that's when I got the first prize. So I, I do thank the Double Reed Society for the opportunity to participate in that kind of a, a competition, which was good for a young person of 20. So I was happy to have taken part in that. And I was very proud. I'll just mention it because, again, it's my horrible ego talking. I was very proud to have won the Grammy for Best Instrumental Soloist for the Orchestra because the bassoon players never won that before. Now, I was very fortunate in that the, the recording that I won it for had many orchestral soloists. had the Strauss Oboe Concerto and the Strauss Duet Concertina for Clarinet and Bassoon and the Horn Concerto. So all of us got an individual Grammy with our names on it. But in the history of the Grammys, I'm the only bassoon player to get one for soloing with an orchestra and i'm very incredible incredible so and i didn't think i never thought of these prizes you know so much i I did the competition because i thought it'd be good for me but when the grammy came i you know i never used to watch the grammys or even pay attention to them because i was not a popular music guy and i thought well classical music musicians get shunted to the side and even when i won i didn't see it i was i turned it on that evening but it was like on the crawl that comes across the side up like this and I got a call from Oklahoma saying, did you see you won? I didn't see anything. I must have been washing dishes in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even invite the classical musicians, you know, to come to the ceremony. So, Oh, that's not right. Somebody needs to write that, write a letter. Get me in my place anyway. And that's good. <laughs> <laughs> we love to end with this question, which is, Uh, What is your advice for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Like mine? Um, Well, 
you have to love it. You have to love music more than anything else practically in your life. And you have to give yourself to it. Um, there was a very famous, I always spout these quotes. I don't know why I'm so big on quoting other people, but there was a very famous silent film actress named Lillian Gish. She was one of the first stars of the early motion picture days. And uh, her career lasted for decades. And she used to say in the arts, what you get is a living. What you give is a life. Mm. And that's what you have to do to be a musician. You have to give your life to it. If you really want to have, as you say, a career like mine, I, I, I think you have to really dedicate yourself to it. And you, the only way to do that is through love. You have to love it more than practically anything. And I still, to this day, I had a friend over last night. We sat up till three o'clock in the morning listening to piano recordings of uh, Dvorak and Brahms' piano forehands works. It was so inspiring. So music is the most important thing to me. And I, it's a great way to share life and the best way to fill in the interval between birth and death. Mr. McGill, thank you so, so much for doing this with us. It's been such an honor and a pleasure and an inspiration. We can't thank you enough. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. So I don't even have to hope that you enjoyed that interview. I know (laughs) that you enjoyed that interview. And I also am going to tell you before we even tell you who it is, that January 2024 are my two favorite episodes of Double Read Dish, like ever. Of all time. Interviews. Do yep. not miss, if you play the bassoon, I do not care. Listen to the next episode. It is a phenomenal, vulnerable, mm-hmm. amazing interview. And if you're like, wow, these ladies have been bringing like these amazing episodes, go ahead and follow and rate on re- and review on iTunes and um, whatnot. Galit, who do we have on the next episode? Okay, co-sign everything you said. This is one of the most inspiring interviews that we've ever done. And it's with Mark Debsky, the principal oboist of the Florida Orchestra. So on that note, Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Time to go read a book. And lift some weights.